Hello, folks, and welcome to episode two of uh, the all-time best music show, Big Ads, is my name, but uh, my very good friends called me Adam. It's entirely up to you. Um, and now, of course, uh, for those of you that are listening to the show for the first time, um, this musical experience has been inspired by the fact that on Facebook we have seen over the last few months uh, the re-emergence of the album cover challenge, which usually goes something along the lines of um, posting your you know, 10 favourite albums over 10 days and only posting a picture of the cover of the album. Um, and then, of course, people can comment on them in the post, but you're not allowed to comment on them. So... Um, I sort of started to think about this, and I started to think about the music that I love, the albums that I love, the, the music that has inspired me and changed my life. And I'm not a musical person. I'm, I'm not a musician. I can't play an instrument. I can't sing. But I do love music, and I love talking about music. And so I'm hoping that there's a bunch of people out there that love listening to me talk about music. And, of course, in our first episode, we did the, uh, the fantastic, the great, in my opinion, one of the greatest albums of all time, which is, of course, uh, Nevermind by Nirvana. And, of course, that one came out in 1991. Uh, It's an album, and as I said in the last episode, an album that changed my life, changed how I listened to music, changed my perspective on the world. And I don't think it's overstating it to say this is an album that created a a social and a cultural revolution. Um, in many ways, this is the album that sort of changed the musical landscape. And and I, and I guess it's really easy to forget that the musical world in 1991 was a very different place. We had very limited access to music. We had, um, you know, the radio and we had television. We had a handful of sort of video music shows, um, usually on early on a Saturday morning. Uh, we had Rage on a Friday and Saturday night. We had a, a version of MTV here before we had pay television or cable television or satellite television, whatever you want to call it, uh, before there was access to a 24-hour music channel, we had uh, a TV show version, uh, usually I believe it was a two- or three-hour show on a Friday and Saturday night. And so we had this really limited range of music to listen to. And and particularly here in Australia, we got... uh, Oftentimes we were late to the party in terms of music and the music that we got access to. Uh, so when when Nirvana came along, uh, they just changed everything. There was a whole musical revolution. We we had this um, had this mainstream music that was all of a sudden taken over by the alternative music world. So for me, I'm I'm going to go through as I did a bit of research on Nevermind, and I looked at Nevermind. I, I thought to myself. Let's have a look at 1991, the year of music. Now, the idea behind this show was to do albums. But when I sat and looked at 1991, 1991, in my opinion, and I haven't gone through all of the years, and I'm sure there's other years that are fantastic as well, but 1991 was one of the best years for music ever. The amount of bands that either released debut albums, released the albums before their big albums, or released their breakthrough albums that year, it's just phenomenal. And these some of these bands are still producing music and still culturally relevant even today, nearly thirty years later. So folks, without further ado, let's give let's have a look at nineteen ninety one, the year in music. It's as simple as that. So before I uh 
I sort of get into some of the, the, the bands that were producing music at the time. Uh, I guess it's worth noting that um, 1991, uh, one of the things that Nirvana and, and the grunge or the alternative kind of revolution did was it effectively killed hair metal. Now, arguably, hair metal was on its way out. And when I talk about hair metal, I'm talking about about bands like Motley Crue and Poison, and Warrant, um, Cinderella. Um, there was a whole re- range of smaller, lesser, well, like here in Australia, those were the, the major bands that were kind of around Skid Row. Um, we also saw variations like bands like Mr. Big, who were sort of a softer version of those bands. Um, we saw Nelson, uh, who were the sons of um, Ricky Nelson, and, and again, still producing music today. Um, we saw obscure kind of um, American acts um, like Winger and Dokken, uh, Striper. But here in Australia, there was a, a pretty, again, a limited access to that music. Uh, but we saw those bands starting to kind of, uh, starting to kind of, I guess, lose their way musically. Um, Motley Crue in 89 had released Dr. Feelgood. It was one of their biggest albums. It was their, their biggest album, I should say. And that, I guess there was a bit of a struggle in trying to keep that standard, that high standard. Um, Poison had released, um, in the late 80s, they'd released Open Up and Say Ah, I believe that was 88. Um, a couple of years later, they released Flesh and Blood, which was a much more sort of um, a bluesy kind of folky album. It wasn't quite the the um, the sort of the bombastic rock of of their previous couple of albums, and it was a real shift in their in their, their musical tone. But in 1991, like I said, we saw uh, the emergence of the underground, the emergence of alternative music, and we saw just and again some magnificent careers started. First up, I'd like to take you through. What is for me the top ten, my top ten albums of 1991, and there is a couple of um, glam metal bands on here, and I'm going to give you a, a special mention, and I'll, I'll explain why it's a special mention. But starting at number ten, um, in on my list of um, classic albums of the of the of 1991, starting at number ten is in fact "Decade of Decadence" by Motley Crue. Now. As I said to you, Motley Crue were on their way out at this stage. Um, it wasn't long after this that they sacked their singer, sacked their singer Vince Neil. I say that ten times fast, and of course replaced him with John Karabi uh, for a couple of albums, and then uh, and before ultimately getting Vince back. And um, and now Motley Crue kind of exists in a, in a bit of a legend status. There, um, they were still able to sell stadiums, still able to do tours, and people, I guess, are coming back to their music. Um. Number nine on my list is Slave to the Grind by Skid Row. Now, if you haven't listened to Skid Row, um, like I said to you, I, I think they were one of the better hair metal acts of the of the um, of the late eighties, early nineties. Uh, their first album, Skid Row, Skid Row, was a fantastic album with hits like Youth Gone Wild and Eighteen and Life, and and of course I Remember You. Um, Slave to the Grind is a heavier album and a thematically a little bit of a darker album, but still, uh, it actually, and it's one of those albums, and for those of you that love music, you'll know there's, there's sometimes when you have loved a, an album, the next album that comes out by that band, you're kind of expecting a similar kind of musical experience. And if you don't get it, sometimes it takes a little while to kind of adjust. And when, when bands kind of shift musically, and change a little bit. And that's exactly what Skid Row did with their album. Um, 
so they were a band that I guess had gotten a little bit heavier, got a little bit darker. Um, songs like uh, Quicksand Jesus and, and Monkey Business and The Threat. Um, and they had a song on there called Get The F Out, which is a, a great song. But a much heavier and a much more sort of rebellious album than their previous album. But if you ever get a chance to listen to this, go and, and just do, go and listen, give it, give it, a, give it a good couple of goes. But "Slave to the Grind" by Skid Row is is probably one of the most underrated rock albums of really of all time. Um, so there in that there is my my I guess my my nod to hair metal. Um, that that was uh, kind of where I was at musically in '91. I was I was still kind of listening to that style of music, but slowly starting to shift over. "Decade to Decadence," of course, by Motley Crue was also a, um, a greatest hits album. And so we saw in that album, for me, I think a Greatest Hits album usually represents that you're starting to kind of, maybe you run out of ideas and you're just trying to buy yourself a little bit of space um, creatively so you can kind of come up with something really good. And, and, and I don't think that Motley Crue ever came up with anything that even remotely got close to their earlier stuff. But they continue to have a fantastic back catalogue. Back catalog. And if you go to a Crue show, you're going to get a, a great back catalogue of hits anyway. So that's number number ten and number nine, um, decade of decadence and, and slave to the grind. Number eight for me, um, I'm going to pop in Guns N' Roses, Use Your Illusion. Now, arguably, you could say they were a hair metal. They definitely came out of that LA scene, but they were much more than that. They were a, an incredible rock band and and a much grittier rock band than 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 their contemporaries. And Use Your Illusion was their double album. And now I've, I've a lot of um top 10 or top 20 or top 100 lists will put him put them as separate albums one and two i prefer to have them as a as a single album in this list um and for me i, I guess the the for me the double album usually represents a little bit of ego out of control you know you are really thinking that you've got enough material to do a, a, a double album of you know 20 odd songs and of course um a couple of those songs particularly don't cry and uh, you could be mine. Were men actually f- were written and meant for uh, the Appetite for Destruction album? Don't cry. Actually, the riff for that was written before Axel was even in Axel Rose. The singer was even in Guns N' Roses, and so you kind of, I guess, saw uh, some of that album was a little bit about having other great songs that they wanted to be a part of. Appetite for Destruction, their their major album, their hit album, and some of it was also about recognizing that we had. Um, you know, they could. I, I think they did it because they could. And as I said, I think there's a fair amount of ego involved in doing a double album. Uh, but Use Your Illusion, and I guess my favourite song on Use Your Illusion, definitely um, You Could Be Mine, but I love Civil War as well. I think Civil War is one of the best songs that I've ever heard. So at number seven is Use Your Illusion uh, by Guns N' Roses. I've got uh, Bad Motorfinger by Soundgarden in there at number six. Um now, arguably, their next album, Super Unknown, was their big breakthrough album. It was the one that really propelled them into mainstream success. But Soundgarden, of course, were a Seattle band and benefited from the Seattle explosion of the early 90s. Um, led by Chris Cornell, uh, may he rest in peace, uh, one of uh, Rock's great vocalists, as was Sebastian Bach from Skid Row, um, one, of the, one of Rock's great voices and one of Rock's great frontmen. And, of course, uh, Bad Motor Finger is just a brilliant album. Uh, if you haven't had a listen to it, Rusty Cage, Outshine, Jesus Christ Pose, uh, just classic rock albums, uh, rock anthems. And of course, um, I guess the difference in 
the sound. I mean, you had, say, Nirvana and Pearl Jam sitting on one side of the Seattle Sound. Um, or, sorry, Nirvana and, say, Mud Honey sitting on one side of the Seattle Sound with that, very much that punk rock influence. And then bands like Pearl Jam and, and Soundgarden and Screaming Trees with that uh, Led Zeppelin kind of influence, that the the bit more anthemic rock inf- influence. And, and of course, um, Pearl Jam wore their, their influences on their sleeve. Uh, they love Neil Young and those sorts of that sort of music. So you you saw a real difference between the two. But but of course they, as they had did in the nineties, and it doesn't happen, I guess, so much anymore. But a band would come out of a scene, and then musical representatives would just go in and look for any other band in that scene that they thought were going to be a hit. Um, so we saw that with Manchester, and we saw it with LA, and New York, and we saw it with a whole range of different musical sort of cities um, going through the the, the musical history. But yeah, I've got number six as Bad Motor Finger by, sorry, I've got <laughs> number seven, I should say, as Bad Motor Finger by Soundgarden. Number six, I've got um, Live Baby Live, uh, In Excess, The Great In Excess. And again, one of the great musical albums. Uh, if you ever get a chance, go and watch the Wembley performance. Um, I believe one of the first and probably only Australian acts ever to headline Wembley, um, the Wembley Arena there in London, and one of the great rock performances from Michael Hutchins. Uh, again, speaking of fantastic frontmen, that you know he's definitely in in the argument for the top five of all time. Uh, an incredible stage presence, a great singer, great songs, on a band at the peak of their powers, a band at the, that was really hitting you know it was really had hit its absolute stride at that point uh, they were on the the back end of the kick album and just releasing fantastic music at that stage um, and so again uh, well worth a listen and if you get the chance and the issue with that album was that so many of us had no idea how to pronounce it because it was of course there's the line in the in the NXS song live baby live um, so and of course, the live version, we all thought it was Live Baby Live, but it turns out that it is actually Live Baby Live. Live Baby Live. Um, I, or, or we always thought it was Live Baby Live, but Live Baby Live. Uh, so, number five. Now, again, speaking of uh, bands that change musical direction, uh, no band changed musical direction more in the early 90s than you 2 And number five for me was Achtung Baby. Achtung Baby. Uh, now, the album was re- recorded in Germany, um, and of course it, it represented a significant musical shift. Uh, Gone was the pilgrim image of the Joshua Tree Rattlin' Hum days, um, which even Bono has said <laughs> that he kind of wishes he never did because it's kind of hung around with him. But, you know, in was this metropolitan European kind of sound that experimented with different musical textures and had elements of industrial music and dance music, and it really represented a major shift forward for that band. Um, U2 is one of my favourite bands. I'm unashamed about that. We're going to go into Aktung Baby a lot more in a future episode. But if you ever get a chance to listen to Aktung Baby start to finish, what you're hearing is a band who is really confident in who they are, who has achieved greatness. They were considered, they were voted the number one band of the the 80s, and is a band that has decided to throw all that out the window and completely reinvent themselves. That's an incredibly brave act musically and artistically from from any group, and certainly what we saw with U2 was a band that 
band that went on and, and became arguably the biggest band in the world. Uh, and if you ever get a chance, not only did it give us, uh, Aktung Baby give us what I think is arguably the greatest breakup song in the world, which is one by U2, um, it gave us the Zoo TV tour. And I want you to go out, and again, I think you can YouTube it, a Zoo TV live in Sydney, and just watch Watch you two give a masterclass in how to put on a stadium rock show and watch how all of the bands that have come since, you know, particularly someone like Taylor Swift, has basically gone, that's the blueprint, that's how we put on a stadium rock show because it's one of the great stadium rock shows you'll ever see. And, of course, filmed live here at the old Sydney Football Stadium that is now, uh, sadly, no longer. Number four on my list uh, is... I think an album I listened to pretty solidly for about six months. Uh, and that is, of course, Blood, Sugar, Sex, Magic. Now, one of the most interesting things I know about this album is this album was recorded, oh, sorry, was released on the same day as Nevermind by Nirvana and Bad Motor Finger by Soundgarden. Just imagine that. Just imagine what that looked like. On one single day, three of the best bands to come out of the alternative rock scene in the early 90s released albums, and that's just incredible. Um, also consider, and I remember reading a, an article from a few years back where it was a, a live concert review in Rolling Stone magazine where the bill consisted of Red Hot Chili Peppers, Nirvana and Pearl Jam at a place called the Cow Palace in San Francisco, California. Um, imagine being in that concert. Imagine that show. Like I've seen some great lineups in my time, but that, that pretty much takes the cake. Uh, but Blood Sugar Sex Magic, now again, um, this was I think their fifth album for the Chili Peppers, uh, represented a, a, I guess a little bit of a taming down of their sound, and again there, there was a couple of songs on the album that didn't make the final cut that, that appeared in other areas like Soul to Squeeze on the Conehead soundtrack and Sick and Eco on the Wayne's World soundtrack, but that album is a Stone Cold classic, uh, whether it's Flea's bass playing, whether it's John Frusciani's incredible guitars. And, of course, it gave us um, one of the most annoying earworms ever, uh, which is Under the Bridge by uh, Anthony Kiedis. Um, you, couldn't, you couldn't listen to FM radio in the early 90s without hearing that song. But, again, a classic album. And, just, and, and the beginning of... Um, a band that was already well-known and well-established and well-regarded, but the beginning of a musical legacy that continues even today. I saw them last year, and they were still pretty good. Uh, now, my top three, and now we're talking about crossover albums here, and we're talking about um, one of the, the great crossover albums of all time, and that is, of course, Metallica by Metallica, the Black Album, uh, self-titled. Uh, represented a, a significant shift commercially, artistically, going from their, their thrash-orientated sound of their earlier albums into a, a much kind of uh, sort of more lumbering, heavier sound, a, more of a heavy metal-inspired, um, you know, more in line with things like Sabbath and those kind of bands, but just a really different sound. And I remember listening to this album um, late one night on a radio station here in Sydney called Triple J, and they used to do a, a late night 
heavy metal show and the name of the show escapes me now i apologize to the triple j people out there if you know it please put it under on the comments and the post here but um what i was listening to that album and i and i liked it and at the time i i didn't like thrash metal i didn't like speed metal or any of that really heavy stuff and metallica were of course a part of what was known as the big four of metal which was slayer anthrax metallica and megadeth um all incredibly heavy kind of bands but when I liked that album, I knew that it was a different album, and I knew that they had headed in a different direction musically. They really divided their fans. Some fans loved them and were loyal to them no matter what. Some people believed they'd sold out and looked for commercial glory. Um, of course, they have become one of the biggest rock bands in the world, and again, you want to see a band that puts on a fantastic stadium show. It's Metallica, um, but you know, look, you could argue that the fans were right, that they did sell out, but realistically... Um, you know, they they kind of dra- dragged heavy metal music into that mainstream arena. And it doesn't get more mainstream than sport. <laughs> you know, how many times have you been watching a sporting montage on TV and you've seen a Metallica um, song? Or, of course, uh, I believe, believe it's the Virginia Tech University in, in America who enters to enter Sandman. And it, and it's believed that the, the stomping in the stadium is so loud that it registers on the Richter scale. That's That's the power of Metallica. Our top two. Uh, number two is not, is the album 10. Now, speaking of great debuts, um, this is Pearl Jam. Um, they released, again, one of the great rock albums of all time. Regularly features on those top 10 lists. Um, a darker album. And this is what alternative music did. You know, where hair metal uh, sort of tiptoed around heavy subjects and tried to kind of um, show emotion through the power ballad. You know, every album had an obligatory lost love song on it when, in the in the hair metal era. Pearl Jam and, and bands like Nirvana and, as I said, Soundgarden, Alice in Chains, Screaming Trees, those those sort of acts, they, they really explored a very different musical landscape thematically. And, and they, you know, this album has stories about death and suicide and, you know, incest and and a whole range of really kind of deep and dark topics, uh, but all under all underscored by an incredible kind of uh, musical, funky musical kind of bass. Um, you know, Why Go On has this kind of really, you know, fantastic kind of rhythm to it. Um, and in the moodiness of a song called Black, uh, or a song like Black, you know, and Release Me, um, you know, Alive, which is a song about a young man who's ignored by his mother um, until one day she, he grows up and he reminds her so much of his father that she falls in love with him. Um, and that song actually a, a part of a trio of songs, um, which was Alive, Once, and then I can't remember what the third one was, uh, but basically... Uh, chronicled this young man becoming so confused that he became a murderer and then in the final song um, is put to death. He's executed for his crimes. So, again, really dark thematically. But uh, a band that kind of hit a nerve and, a, and, and are still one of the great bands of musical history and, and still putting out music and still touring the world and filling stadiums. So, again... Thinking about these bands that, that released these debut albums, and we'll, we'll touch on a few more that released debut albums and had varying levels of success. But Pearl Jam, I mean, nineteen ninety one, that was a that was a, a year, 
Now, of course, number one is Nirvana. Um, never mind. I spoke about it in the last episode. It's one of my favorite albums of all time. It changed my world um, musically, physically, emotionally, spiritually, everything. And um, and uh, it's really easy to forget. You know, again, watching, sitting and watching Smells Like Teen Spirit on Rage on a Friday night in my mum's lounge room on my own and just knowing that I'd watched something stunning, brilliant, amazing, knowing I'd watched a piece of musical genius. Um, really easy to forget that there was no YouTube. There was no Spotify. There was no, no streaming, no nothing like that. No way of knowing who these people were. Um, so we had to go and learn about them. We had to go and listen to radio. We had to hope that radio were going to play them. We had to hope that we were going to see them on music shows. We had to hope that we were going to be able to buy a magazine. Um, you know, so... You know, that's why I started buying Rolling Stone magazine, Spin magazine, Alternative Press magazine. Uh, even Hot Metal um, got onto the, the grunge thing before it died its death, if you haven't. For those of you out there, the uh, Australian listeners out there, you remember Hot Metal, one of the great music magazines. May it rest in peace. But that's my 10. That's the bands that I loved. Um, and that's the albums, I should say, that I loved coming out of that decade. Now, I said there was a special mention, and special mention and, and sneaking in at number 11 is Bandwagon-esque by the Teenage Fan Club. And the reason I mention this album is because Bandwagon-esque actually, uh, in 1991, was voted by Spin Magazine, uh, the alternative music magazine, American music magazine, as being the um, as being the best album of that year, beating Nevermind by Nirvana. There isn't a single musical list alive now that has that album above Nirvana's Nevermind. Uh, in fact, Nevermind usually features at number one. If it's not them, it's um, Radiohead. Um, but Teenage Fan Club's claim to fame is that their album Bandwagon S. It is a fantastic album. They were a Scottish punk pop band. Um, I saw them at the 94 Big Day Out. They blew me away. I went and got the album after that, bought the T-shirt. Uh, but if you ever get a chance to listen to Bandwagon S, you just want a bit of uh, sweet Scottish pop punk bandwagon is the album to listen to uh so that was my top 10 of 1991 but i want to walk you through some of the other albums that were released that year and it really is as i said an incredible list of albums uh, if you haven't sort of and you, you've heard of these you know these albums now like i said glam metal, like i said glam metal was on its way out that year uh, but we still had some pretty significant releases. Little Ain't Enough by David Lee Roth, Freak Show by The Bullet Boys, Slave to the Grind by Skid Row, um, F-U-C-K, For Unlawful Carnal Knowledge by Van Halen. And really the great thing about that, the, the most notable thing about that album uh, is the fact that it was titled that and was sold as For Unlawful Carnal Knowledge. Um, and there's a theory that that's actually how um, that got its name. That the F word comes from uh, the idea that uh, people could be charged for having unlawful carnal knowledge. Um, Hollywood Vampires by LA Guns. Now, LA Guns, for those of you who don't know, uh, Tracy Guns from the LA Guns was in the early version of Guns N' Roses and left Guns N' Roses after a, uh, a particularly bad road trip to a gig and, uh, and went off and started his own band, potentially one of the dumbest musical decisions of all time. Uh, hey Stupid by Alice Cooper, who was experiencing a uh, bit of a career resurgence at the time, back, Backlash by Bad English, Rat and Roll, which was the best of album by uh, the band Rat. Um, again, an unrated band, underrated band, not really that popular here in Australia, but massive in America. Uh, Psychotic Supper by Tesla, No More Tears by Ozzy Osbourne, 
Uh, we already spoke about Use Your Illusion. That was released that year. Live, Trained to Heartbreak Station by Cinderella. Ceremony by The Cult. Uh, one of my favourite songs is A Wild-Hearted Son by The Cult, and it is a cracker, and it is on that album. And, of course, we saw A Decade of Decadence by Motley Crue and Swallow This Live by Poison. Um, and, again, uh, for me, I, I think either, either the release of a Best of or a Live album says you've kind of run out of musical ideas. But all those bands were still active in that year. But, it, like I said, consider some of the alternative classics that came out that year. Um, we saw debut albums. We saw a whole range of stuff. Uh, we saw an album from a band called Temple of the Dog. And if you haven't listened to Temple of the Dog, Temple of the Dog actually... So the precursor to Pearl Jam was a band called Mother Love Bone, and they were a little bit more glam-inspired. Uh, but I believe Jeff and Stone were in Mother Love Bone, and their singer Andy Wood died from a heroin overdose. Now, of course, heroin would, heroin would play a pretty prominent role... Um, in the the Seattle music scene, it took out at least a couple of the singers. Uh, took out Kurt Cobain. Well, you know, Kirk, he didn't die from a heroin overdose, but he certainly had a heroin addiction. Lane Staley from Alice in Chains was another heroin addict, and of course, I believe Shannon Hoon from Blind Melon was um was a was a, a fan of heroin as well, um, for lack of a better term. Uh, but Andy Wood from Mother Love Bone died. Now these guys were left bandless. And uh, there was a bit of a collaboration between a group of people that were in the scene at the time, including members of Pearl Jam and Soundgarden, and they uh, released they released Temple of the Dog by Temple of the Dog with uh, again one of my favourite songs, Say Hello to Heaven, and um, Hunger Strike on that album. Uh, and only released, I believe, the one album uh, because, of course, both of their bands went on to have huge success over the next few months. But um, you know. We saw, I guess, the birth of two great bands in that album and three fantastic albums in that year. Uh, Why Do Birds Sing by The Violent Femmes, Sailing the Seas of Cheese by Primus was released in that year. Um, Primus is, I think, one of those other bands like The Femmes um, who are everyone's kind of favourite band, but they never got successful. Everyone kind of likes Primus. Les Claypool's bass playing is sensational. Uh, a band with a sense of humour and a band with uh, the ability to play incredible, funky music. Now, a couple of interesting albums that year, and and th- thinking about this, uh, we saw Trompe Le Mon by the Pixies. Uh, Frank Black and Kim Deal. Kim Deal went on to form the Breeders, and uh, we're going to talk about the Breeders' last splash later in an episode. Uh, but Frank Black and Kim Deal. Now, the final years of the Pixies in the 90s, uh, we're very much uh, apparently um, around, uh, par- we're turbulent, let's just say that. Uh, a lot of infighting, and I believe Kim Deal left the band not long after the album was recorded. Um, so technically this is their last album as the original Pixies lineup in the 90s. Uh, so what we were watching there was, again, a band that went on to inspire a lot of other bands, including Nirvana, but also a band that were imploding and probably imploded at just the wrong time, i.e. just before the alternative music boom. They did benefit from it. Frank Black went on to, uh, Black Francis, I should say, went on to become Frank Black and uh, and with um, and recorded a, a couple of standout, and of course with the, his band Frank Black, Black and the Catholics, recorded a couple of standout albums, of course the song Headache, which is one of my favourite songs from the 90s. And Kim Deal went on to form the Breeders and record the last Splash album, which is, in my opinion, one of the best albums, one of the most underrated albums of the 90s. But we also saw the debut 
uh, from a band called Caius. Uh, Wretch and Caius uh, were LA Desert Stoner Rock. And of course, uh, Caius went on to uh, kind of disintegrate a little bit and uh, members of Caius went on to form Queens of the Stone Age, Josh Homme from Queens of the Stone Age. And of course, uh, the Eagles of Death Metal uh, have a lineage to Caius as well. Um, coming out of the Rancho Della Luna studio out there in Palm Springs in the desert in California and uh, just a different bunch of dudes but a, a really a fantastic musical force. We already spoke about the Teenage Fans and we also spoke about Bandwagon S by... Teen, by, um, by we spoke about Bandwagon S by the Teenage Fan Club. Uh, but Matthew Sweet's Girlfriend album came out that year as well. So alternative, alternative music actually firmly in the mix at that point. And um, I guess what we also saw was a, a slew of um, breakthrough albums. As we said, uh, we had uh, Metallica in the mix at the time as well. Uh, but we saw R.E.M., have their breakout album at that time, which was the the was the the album out of time. Uh, REM, one again, one of the great musical acts of the nineties. Uh, a little bit quiet now, uh, but we saw these incredible breakthrough albums. Uh, this incredible breakthrough album from them, including the single "Losing My Religion." Now, of course, "Losing My Religion" was uh, the the uh, a bit of an earworm as well. Um, we also saw the song Shiny Happy People on that album, so I don't think it was all fantastic. Um, but it went on to win a, a gang of awards. I think it won MTV Music Awards, it won Grammy Awards. And so Out of Time by R.E.M., one of the great albums, and really probably, as I said, their, their musical kind of uh, uh, breakthrough. Uh, Ice-T, a couple of years ago, had released Colours, and we saw Ice-T release the OG, original Gangster album that year. Uh, speaking of classic breakthrough albums, we also saw a band called The Divinals, an Australian band called The Divinals. Now, some of the, our younger listeners might not know that. Some of our overseas listeners might only be vaguely aware of The, the Divinals. Uh, of course, led by the incomparable Chrissy Amphlett. We saw The Divinals release their album, The Divinals, and they were already a very well-established Aussie pub rock band. Uh, female fronted, which was unusual for those times, and and I think arguably Chrissy Amphlett, one of the great female, one of the great rock front people of all time, but definitely one of the great rock front women of all time. Uh, but of course, that album is famous for uh, the 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 one and only "I Touch Myself," and uh, that sat at the top of a. Uh, the musical charts for a very long time, uh, made the band famous in America and, of course, created a lot of really uncomfortable conversations around dinner tables. What does that mean, Dad? What's he singing? Is he saying, why is she touching herself? Um, we saw Metallica and Metallica break through that year, as we said, but, of course, we also saw uh, a rap group called De La Soul with their album De La Soul is Dead. Uh, now, they perhaps didn't go on to have the success of some of their contemporaries, but... Uh, if you had an answering machine, because we the nineties, the, the early nineties was the uh, I guess the birth of the answering machine, the precursor to voicemail, the birth of the answering machine, and for those of us even that had the early versions versions of voicemail, um, of course there was the the little clip from De La Soul. Hey, how you doing? Sorry you can't get through. Why don't you leave your name and your number, and I'll get back to you. <sighs> I've lost count of the amount of answering machines that I spoke to in the early 90s that had that as their uh, their message. 
<laughs> their greeting message. So that's uh, probably De La Souls, but um, man, one of my favourite songs actually from the 90s was a song called Roller Skating Jam named Saturday by De La Soul. If you get a chance, have a listen to that one as well. So we saw these great breakthrough albums. We also saw some uh, incredible debut albums this year. Have a listen to this as a list of debut albums that year. Alanis by Alanis Morissette. Now, Alanis Morissette, for those of you that don't know, um, released, um, I think three years later, two, three years later, Jagged Little Pill. In fact, I think it was three years later. Um, co- produced by Glenn Ballard, and, and I guess there's some uh, conjecture about how much of that album actually Alanis had influence over. Uh, but Alanis Morissette in the late 80s and early 90s, in fact, in the 80s, was a was a Canadian child TV star. And she was, I guess... Um, I guess the modern equivalent is somebody like Ariana Grande, who was starring on children's television and wanting to go on and become an adult performer. And so her first couple of albums were actually fairly saccharine kind of pop music. Um, Definitely that sort of bubblegum kind of, let's go to the mall, um, you know, that boy doesn't, that boy, I like that boy kind of music. And... This is what we got with Alanis by Alanis Morissette. Uh, she's got the fluffy hair on the cover. And we it was a couple of years before we got a, a more serious musical Alanis. But uh, 1991 saw Alanis by Alanis Morissette, who won an incredible debut. Um, and uh, one of my favorite stories, one of my favorite little things, watching uh, the Fuller House, the, the Full House reboot, uh, if you will, and um, and there's a the rumor is or the the story goes that the the song you ought to know by Alanis Morissette um, on Jagged Little Pill is about um, Dave Coolier, who was Uncle Joey from uh, Full House, and in the Fuller House, the reboot on Netflix, there's a scene where the grown up DJ character is going out to her high school reunion. And they were saying, quick, we want to get there before they play Alanis Morissette. And she turns to another character and says, by the way, did you ever hear who the, the rumor about who that song was about? And they walked out the door. And I, it was just a nice little self-referential nod from that show. Um, but yeah, uh, uh, Alanis by Alanis Morissette as a debut album. Um, Gish by the Smashing Pumpkins. Now, of course, this was their debut. And they would go on a couple of years later to release in 93 to release Siamese Dream, uh, one, of, one of my favourite, another one of my favourite albums of all time and probably my top 10 albums of all time, um, a musical masterpiece. And of course, because their egos got out of control, their next album was Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness, which was a double album. Uh, but Gish by the Smashing Pumpkins is one of the all-time classics. The Tea Party uh, released their album, The Tea Party, and again, a couple of albums later, they would release uh, Edges of Twilight and one of my favourite songs, Fire in the Head, we saw Blue Lines by Massive Attack. Now, this is a really interesting thing here. Um, if you look at some of these lists of great musical albums, um, the top 10 is usually fairly determined by which country the, 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 the author comes from. So if you look at a UK top 10 list, it'll usually, in the, particularly the early 90s, will feature Radiohead and Blur and Primal Scream and a whole range of 90s pop acts. Uh, 90s kind of English Britpop acts. Uh, but if you're an American writer, of course, it'll form slightly differently. And there'll be a couple of those on there, but it'll, it'll be much less British-influenced. 
Uh, but of course, we saw so we saw Screamadelica by Primal Scream released in 1991 as well. But we saw Blue Lines by Massive Attack, um, and Massive Attack would give birth to a, a rapper one again, one of my favourites, a guy named Tricky, um, who released a really incredible version of Black Steel, um, which is a uh, comes from the PE song Black Steel in the Hour of Chaos. But um, if you ever get a chance, have a listen to Massive Attack. The next on my little list of albums that released in 1991 as debut albums was a music, an album called Music for the People by Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch. And fortunately for the world, Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch did not last very long. Uh, but Marky Mark's claim to fame, couple of claim to fames, is number one, he was the brother of Donnie Wahlberg um, from, from New Kids on the Block, and the album was produced by him. And you may have figured out what the second part is. Of course, Marky Mark went on to become Mark Wahlberg, the uh, celebrated and lauded American actor, um, you know, action movie star and, and all-round kind of tough guy, famous for getting up at, you know, four o'clock in the morning to start his day and, and doing an hour and two hours worth of workout and an hour worth of prayers before he has breakfast. So um, Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch, with their song Good Vibrations, took over the musical world in 1991. Uh, as did a slightly more legitimate rap act, um, a band called Cypress Hill. Again, a couple of uh, couple of years away from releasing their hit album, um, which was Black Sunday, their big crossover hit. But uh, Cypress Hill by Cypress Hill released that year. As we said before, Ten by Pearl Jam was a debut for that band that year. But also uh, a song called Blur, a song called a album, a song called Blur, an album called Leisure by the by the band Blur. Now again, Blur were a, a couple of years away from a, a breakout hit, uh, but Leisure was Blur's first album. And again, if you listen to, if you read a UK version of a top ten list, then Blur's you know, Leisure by Blur certainly on the the list. Uh, we we've already talked about Wretch by Caius. Um, a couple of other albums that were released that year, Pennywise by Pennywise released that year. We already talked about them, a debut album, and they would go on to be California punk rock legends. But a couple of pretty significant releases that year. Ricky Martin released his debut album, an all-Spanish album in that year, and within a couple of years he would cross over and start singing somewhat in English and uh, become uh, part of that early 90s, mid-90s Latin explosion. Um, and with, of course, Living La Vida Loca, and, uh, and, and would start, as I said, start to sing in English and in Spanish. Uh, we saw Boys to Men release Cooley High Harmony that year. And if you've uh, ever went to a school disco in 92 and 93, you've probably danced at the end of the night to End of the Road by Boys to Men. Um, Motown Philly is also on that album, one of the great 90s sort of, uh, uh, pop songs, um, but Boys to Men with Cooley Hot Harmony. Now, interestingly enough, on the first version of this album in 91, End of the Road wasn't on it. End of the Road actually featured on a soundtrack to a movie called Boomerang by Eddie Murphy and was so popular that they re-released the album in 93 with a couple of extra songs on it, one of which was End of the Road, and it propelled it to you know huge heights. But again, if you went to a school disco or in 92, 93... You heard End of the Road. Um, and there was one more you know, incredible debut that year, which is, of course, um, Tupacalypse Now by Tupac. Now, 1991, Tupac releases his debut album. You've got to consider this, that in 1996, Tupac was gone. Okay, not murdered in, in Las Vegas in, in two, 1996. So Tupac's entire career 
three albums, a couple of movies, um, or three albums released while he was alive. He, they've released a stack of them with you know stuff that he'd recorded whilst he was still alive. But his entire career lasted five years. You know his musical legacy, his cultural legacy, the fact that most people consider him still to be their favourite rapper. Um, he's held in such high regard, but his musical career, his entire career, lasted for five years, 91 to 96. Uh, really quite an incredible achievement for him and, of course, a massive, uh, massive opportunity to... Um, well, a massive effect on the, the world of music. Uh, and, of course, that's our debuts. Now, some of those albums also qualify as kind of albums before the big one, like Gish by the Smashing Pumpkins, Cypress Hill by Smout, Cypress Hill, um, Leisure by Blur. You know, these are Pretty on the Inside by Hole was also on that list. I don't know if I mentioned Pretty on the Inside by Hole. Um, Courtney Love, of course, the wife of Kurt Cobain, would a couple of years later release Live Through This. I was lucky enough to see Hole a couple of times at Big Day Outs. The first time I saw them, they were terrible. Well, I say lucky enough. first time I saw them, they were terrible. She was pretty strung out at that stage. Um, she came out, she did the show, she got off, she was just awful. And the second time I saw them was a different Courtney Love. She was strong, she was solid, the, so- the, the songs were tight. It was an amazing, amazing sort of 40 minutes on stage. She was brilliant. And I, I really fell in love with Hole after watching that show. Um, but definitely worth uh, thinking about in the sense of um, a great debut album, but also the album before their big album. Um, there was a couple others in that year as well. Uh, if you, uh, We also saw Arise by Sepultura. And Arise is significant because we saw a... Um, we saw a different Sepultura. Um, for those of you that are sort of fans of, again, they were very much like Metallica. That they were much of a much more of a sort of a thrash kind of a band. Uh, but Arise by Sepultura saw them start to experiment a little bit more with. They were a Brazilian band. They with Brazilian rhythms, with tribal rhythms, and we saw that fully realised on the next album, which was Roots, and um, arguably again their biggest hit, and again their breakthrough album. Um, so, you know, Arise by Sepultura was certainly an album before the big one for those guys. Um, Lenny Kravitz releases Mama's Said in 1991 as well. And so we, if you want to think about albums before the big one, um, a couple of years later he goes on to release Are You Going to Go My Way? And that album skyrockets him to the top of the musical tree. Uh, he's starred in movies, he's been on TV, had this incredible career since, but it was Mama Said in 1991, you know, Lenny Kravitz, just releasing that album just before the big one. Uh, Sm- Gish by the Smashing Pumpkins came out that year, as did Cypress Hill, Cypress Hill, like we said. Uh, but a couple more albums. Now, one that wasn't quite as big, a band that wasn't as big, um, a band called The Screaming Trees, who came out of Seattle as well. Uh, they would release an album a couple of years later called Sweet Oblivion with a song called Nearly Lost You On It that usually features in most people's mic tapes from the 90s, and one of my favourite songs of all time. Um, but there, in 91, they released an album called Uncle Anesthesia. And and again, um, I, I don't know if they quickly rushed a second album out to kind of capitalise on the grunge rock explosion. That lasted for you know a good couple of years. But again, we saw in 91, this band active, putting albums out and then releasing releasing Sweet Oblivion two years later. 
And finally, we also saw Mental Jewelry by Live, um, with one of my favourite songs of all time called Operation Spirit on it. Great song. Um, but Live were a couple of years away from releasing uh, their album, Throwing Copper. And uh, that album just, you know, I've always said, <laughs> Throwing Copper started with selling the drama, lightning crashes, and one of my favourite songs, I Alone. And I've always said that if I... Uh, if I ever do a, go on one of those, I'm not a singer. But if I was ever to go on one of those, you know, music shows where you have to get chairs to turn or vo- judges to want to like you, I would sing uh, "I Alone" by Live. That would be my song that I would sing um, because it's, you know, just one of the great songs of all time. Uh, a couple other things that we saw that year as well: uh, the beginning of the the Lollapalooza Music Festival, started by Perry Farrell, which was uh, largely a, a festival that was kind of designed to showcase his band Jane's Addiction in the 90s and um, went on to become an inspiration for a number of musical festivals, including, I think, our own Big Day Out, but uh, the, at the time considered to be one of the world's premier uh, alternative rock um, musical festivals. We also saw that year the release of um, Apocalypse, 91 by Public Enemy. Um, now, arguably, PE were a couple of years past their best. Um, they were, you know, they'd released um, Fear of a Black Planet and It Takes a Nations of Millions to Hold Us Back. But the significance of uh, Apocalypse 91 was that the last track on the album was a track called Bring the Noise. Now, a couple of years before, we had seen the birth of the rap rock crossover with um, Run DMC and Aerosmith releasing Walk This Way. Uh, Bring the Noise was a collaboration with a band called Anthrax. And uh, Anthrax was a very fast, very heavy metal band. But I would argue that they almost single-handedly gave birth to the rap rock movement with that song. Um, It is a great song. It's one of the great songs of all time. And if you like rap and you like metal and you like that way they mix together, um, it's certainly worth having a listen to. Don't hold them responsible for anything that came after them. Um, you know, I mean, we, we now can kind of look back and see that bands like Kid Rock and Korn were certainly um, born out of that musical experiment, but it is one of the most underrated songs of all time. And speaking of underrated songs of all time, 91 also saw a band called Third Bass. Um, that were a white rap group, only ever released one album. This was their debut and their only album, The Derelicts of Dialect. Um, but one of the great songs and great music videos of all time called uh, Pop Goes the Weasel. And uh, the claim to fame on that album is a, it's a, it's, it is a bit of a diss track, um, Pop Goes the Weasel, aimed firmly at um, commercialised white rappers, i.e. Vanilla Ice, who was still active in 91, and uh, Henry Rollins, the great Henry Rollins, appears as Vanilla Ice in the film clip for that album. Uh, so if you ever get a chance to listen to that one, that's an interesting one as well. Speaking of great diss tracks, on uh, 91 also saw the release of Death Certificate by Ice Cube. Um, now, Ice Cube had left NWA. NWA, interestingly enough, had released their last album, their last full-length album as a band, Ice Cube had already left at this stage, um, there was largely now, when it was released in stores and when it was uh, when you saw it on the the charts, you saw it in a reversed 
lettering. So it was called Ethel for Zagan. Um, but the album was actually called Niggers for Life. Um, and of course, in, you know, NWA stood for Niggers with Attitude. Um, but NWA releasing one of the great uh, diss tracks around the same time as well, which was 100 Miles and Running, where they had a very firm shot at Ice Cube. And Ice Cube's reply was a song called No Vaseline on Death Certificate. So if you ever get a chance again to listen to that, one of the great diss tracks of all time, No Vaseline, really vicious. He really went hard out for him and, and has been criticised recently for being um, anti-Semitic in that album, but um, in that song, but... I guess he was an angry man. So uh, we saw some significant rap happening, as we said. Apocalypse Now, um, Apocalypse 91, The Enemy Strikes Back with PE. Um, you know, NWA releasing their last albums, Ice Cube, and releasing an album, and as I said, Third Base, um, you know, around at that time as well. And last but most certainly not least, uh, we come to the, the final albums, the, the albums that... Um, the bands that released albums that this was their final album. This was the the, the end of them. We, we already said um, Niggas for Life by NWA. Uh, again, a short career, an incredibly influential career. Dre would go on a little while later to release The Chronic, which is you know considered to be one of the great albums of the 90s and one of the great rap, definitely one of the greatest rap albums of all time but and, and certainly of the 90s. And of course, The Chronic regularly features in the list of great albums of all time. Uh, we also saw, as we said earlier on, Trompe Le by the Pixies, their first, uh, their final kind of studio, uh, final album as the, the full original lineup of the Pixies. We saw Dire Straits follow up their album Brothers in Arms with uh, an album called On Every Street. Now, Dire Straits just dominated the musical landscape for a long, long time. For a long period of time, they had the record for... Uh, the most amount of shows here at our Sydney Entertainment, pardon me, our Sydney Entertainment Centre here in uh, Sydney, New South Wales. And, I mean, almost revolutionise the way that we watched music because their early um, videos were incredible. And they were sort of self-referential as well, um, particularly the song Money for Nothing, Money for Nothing. Um, because they, they sort of talked about the fact that, you know, it was the way to earn money. You know, they ain't working. That's the way you do it. You put your, you know, get your money for nothing and your chicks for free. You get your videos on the MTV. But on every street, I, I guess we kind of touched on this earlier on. I, I would imagine it'd be really, really hard to put out a, a huge album and then kind of follow that up. I mean, it was six years between Brothers in Arms and On Every Street. It was so incredibly successful worldwide. It went to every top of all the charts and they, I think it was something like 17 shows in a row at the Sydney Entertainment Centre, which was a venue that held 10,000 people. So, you know, 170,000 people went and watched that show. Um, but On Every Street, just not as successful. Um, just not as, not as big. Um, and again proved to be their final album was the, the, the last album that they released as a, as a band um, and speaking of last albums released as a, a full band and the last album on our on our list here uh, is of course um, Innuendo by Queen 
Now, it was released in early 1991. Um, at the time, the band were denying rumours that their frontman, Freddie Mercury, was sick. Um, we now know that he passed away at the end of 1991, in, in November of 1991, from a uh, AIDS-related illness, uh, pneumonia, or flu, or pneumonia. And um, But Freddie, I guess one of the very first high-profile um, people who acknowledged he had the, the HIV and the AIDS virus. Um, and I guess the, really the only other one I can think of, I mean, Charlie Sheen's come out recently saying that he's HIV positive. But in the 90s, when we were at the height, you know, in the, in the late 80s, there was a real scare campaign. You know, you think that coronavirus was a scare campaign. This thing was ridiculous. You know, Grim Reapers bowling balls down, you know, bowling alleys and knocking over people, pins made out of people. It was horrible stuff. But the only other person I can really think of that's high profile is Magic Johnson, who's, who's kind of come out and spoken about his you know, the AIDS virus. Magic, of course, fortunate enough to have lived long enough. Uh, he looks still really healthy and he's still really active and he's, you know, still active in sports administration. Um, I think he was the general manager of the LA Lakers for a long time. Saw him at uh, Kobe's funeral earlier this year. Again, still looks really well. So fortunate enough to live long enough to benefit from increased medical awareness of, of you know, HIV and, and, and better treatment of HIV, better drugs and things like that. But yeah, Freddie Mercury dies in, in late 91, November 91, and their last album was Innuendo. That was their last full album with Freddie, Freddie Mercury as their singer. Um, they've released greatest hits albums and, and, and other bits and pieces over the years and, and now have Adam Lambert singing for them. But our final album of 1991 is, is Queen, Innuendo. So as you can see, we had some musical giants emerge in the in the early '90s. Some musical giants break through. Uh, you don't get much bigger names worldwide than bands like Metallica, Pearl Jam, U2, bands that are still producing fantastic music. We saw some, uh, like, and the other person that released an album in '91, one of our other favourites here at uh, at at here at the all time best music show is of course the great. Mariah Carey, <laughs> Mariah, of, uh, Mariah releases uh, Emotions, her follow-up to her debut album, uh, and look, Mariah was the biggest female recording artist in the world at the time, um, so Mar- Mariah Carey's Emotions album released in 91 as well, uh, but we saw some absolute giants, we saw some giants fall, we saw some giants emerge, we saw some incredible debuts, we saw some incredible breakthroughs. Uh, but if there is a better musical year than 1991, I, I'm going to have to go searching for it because, in my opinion, uh, even just that top ten list of, that I that I read out earlier on, you know, Decade of Decadence, Motley Crue, Slave to the Grind, Skid Row, uh, Usual Illusion, Guns and Roses, Bad Motor Finger, Soundgarden, Live Baby, uh, <coughs> pardon me, Live Baby Live, By In Excess. Aktung Baby, U2, Blood Sugar Sex, Magic, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Metallica, Metallica, 10 by Pearl Jam and Nirvana, Nevermind. Arguably one of the best top 10 lists in the history of music. And um, and certainly that top five, just an incredible uh, list of bands that released fantastic music back in 1991. 
Thanks for watching us, folks. If you're listening to this still, go and uh, listen to all of those fantastic uh, that, that fantastic music. Remind yourself of just how good the early 90s was. And uh, look out for next time. We'll come back with more incredible music here at the all-time best music show. Thanks for listening. <laughs>